Hey guys, time to break out those 8-bit rose-tinted nostalgia glasses. This week we're going to be looking into Spiritual Successor Games. Welcome back to 8-Bit Archaeology. My name's Eric and I love talking about video game design, lore, and inspiration. So this week I want to cover something a little off-topic similar to how I did la the last time with uh, 2D platformers. But instead of focusing on one game specifically, uh, I've been playing a lot of what are called spiritual successor games, or what I would categorize as spiritual successor games, which essentially are newer games that are meant to be either a, you know, in air quotes, continuation of a previous game series, or something that is heavily inspired by something from the past. So this episode is not going to so much cover a specific game design ideas so much as it is getting into the idea of creating games that are successors to games from, you know, 20 or 30 years ago and how those sorts of styles hold up today right? Because how do you take something from that long ago and have the material still hold up in a different gaming landscape where technology has advanced and game designs have, have advanced? So really what I'm going to be covering with this episode is sort of my take on some of the spiritual successor games that I've been playing the last couple years and, you know, how they relate back to the source material and sort of how people's yearning for an old game series that they played growing up can be a strong factor you know, that, that sort of wash of nostalgia can be a huge factor in their perception of a game and, uh, you know, can really determine whether they can look at that game with a critical eye or not. Because, you know, sometimes you have games that will hold up really well because the gameplay and the inspiration for the game is something that's timeless. And then in other cases, it could be a formula that, you know, 20 years down the line does not hold it up at all. So to sort of start off the uh, the sort of the games that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to break them down into sort of two categories. And, you know, this is all going to be partially opinion based because it's going to be what I thought of the games and how it relates to the source material. But really the games that I want to look at that came out in recent history are games like Ukulele, Axiom Verge, uh, Bloodstained Curse of the Moon, Mighty Number no. 9, Mighty Gunvolt Burst, uh, Octopath Traveler, which is coming out later this week. It's the uh, 9th of July right now, so it, it gets released on the 13th. And also Stardew Valley. So the reason I want to look at those games specifically is because all of those series are either games that are being worked on by developers of the original series that they were inspired by, or they all draw heavily from a very sp specific game series or source material and have adapted it in a way uh, to sort of evolve the franchise or, you know, maybe it's become stagnant and uh, flaws in the gameplay have become more evident with age. So usually I would want to start off with the more positive aspects of what spiritual successor games can do, but I actually want to start on the, uh, I don't want to call it negative, I want to start it more on the, the side of things where nostalgia can be sort of blinding and things created in the same vein as old IP can be deceiving at first because you're perceiving it from the lens of playing a similar experience before. So there's a couple games specifically that I want to talk about that kind of capture this maybe more, uh, I don't want to call it negative, but more unsuccessful side of what spiritual successor games uh, include. So uh, I'll start off with Mighty Number no. 9. So Mighty Number no. 9 was meant to be a sort of spiritual successor to the Mega Man series. Now Mighty Number no. 9 was trying to be original in its art style and its gameplay mechanics. Or, well, it, the gameplay mechanics are meant to copy the basis of the Mega Man series. 
right? So my number nine was taking the basic premise of having, you know, the eight bosses, having a main character that looks a lot like Mega Man and moves very similar to Mega Man and bringing it into sort of an, you know, an updated envelope. So it had sort of 2D, 3D graphics and updated, you know, sort of controls and, and things and, and, you know, eight new bosses that weren't based around the Mega Man universe. Now, while it was it was successful in some of the cooler boss battles in the game, but this 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 was a Kickstarter project that and that sort of fell flat, right? So it tried to innovate on some of the basis of Mega Man, but it did it it didn't deliver what people were expecting. People were expecting a straight up you know two D two D slash three D Mega Man experience, and instead they got something that was sort of half baked, and it, it had a pretty negative reaction too because it was something that people had put money towards, put their own money towards. There were backers for this game and when people got their copies they were pretty disappointed and I, I think that's sort of like the biggest the biggest case study I can point out in terms of a, an unsuccessful attempt to recreate an old IP now one that I that I have a little bit more mixed feelings on is ukulele so ukulele is uh, sort of a spiritual successor to the banjo kazooie series uh, developed by rare back in you know the n64 days now these games are notorious for being collectathons and uh, people look back very fondly on banjo kazooie and rightfully so that game is a masterpiece in its own right for the period the game the gameplay mechanics and platforming are tight for the time and everything about that game is sort of charming now ukulele is being was developed as a kickstarter project um and a lot of the people on the team were also people that worked on the original games so people thought this had to be good the trailers looked really promising, and people thought they were just going to get more Banjo-Kazooie. Well, in a way they did, but I think the reaction to it was more mixed than positive in some cases. Now, don't get me wrong, these are- Ukulele is- is a great game in its own right, but I think what what I want to get to is the fact that it kind of takes the takes the premise and the mechanics of a game like Banjo Kazooie that's you know two decades old and kind of points out the flaws. So Ukulele came out you know pretty hot on the heels of well it came out before a game like Super Mario Odyssey, but if you're if you were on the Switch platform you got Ukulele you know, like two weeks after Mario Odyssey. So I picked up Ukulele after playing Mario Odyssey and I just found myself sort of, you know, flabbergasted at the difference between them because I thought I was going to be getting a pretty similar game in terms of collecting, platforming, and just, you know, exploring a 3D world. But I felt my, I found myself feeling a little, you know, left short. And it's not Ukulele's fault. Ukulele is doing what it promised to do. It's, it's, it's being another Banjo-Kazooie game. But the problem is, is those mechanics over the last two decades have sort of not held up as well. You know, if you want a really good, simple collectathon, go back and play the original Banjo-Kazooie. But the ukulele, the way Ukulele tries to update those mechanics doesn't work as well. And, you know, I, I, it is hard to compare games like Ukulele and and Mario Odyssey, because obviously Mario Odyssey is developed by a AAA studio, and Ukulele was developed by a an independent team of devs who worked on the original game and wanted to make a love letter to their fans. And I, I do think they succeeded in that way, but I don't think they were able to bring anything new to the IP. And I think it's really, I think this is where nostalgia can sort of be hazardous in a way because you have such fond memories of an old game and it can sort of taint your vision of the shortcomings of a certain game. And also, you know, we were all younger when we played games like this, so it's harder to see those flaws unless you go back. Sometimes it's better if you don't go back and play some of your favorite games because then you can hold on to those positive memories of it. You know, I have games that I played when I was five or six or ten or whatever that I'll go back to after years and years of not touching them and I'll be like, wow. You know, I'll get I'll get like really good nostalgic feel nostalgic feelings in the, in the beginning because I know what's gonna happen. And I'm 
like, oh, I love this game. This is awesome. But then when I get into it, sometimes it falls flat because it was a lot more exciting of an experience as a kid when I was a, le- a lot less critical and just enjoying the game. And I know that I try not to be cynical when playing through games, but when I'm replaying through a game that I know what, you know, things are going to happen or what to expect or what I'm like getting myself into, it's a lot easier to come at it with a critical eye and sort of point out the flaws. So I I don't want to spend much longer on this podcast harping on how nostalgia can be sort of a uh, a negative impact on game design when, you know, in, in current day, in the current day gaming industry, because sometimes mechanics and series just don't age well. But I want to pivot more towards the the sort of way more positive aspect of how old IPs can be a way of informing new IPs and also sort of give people a faithful recreation of games they loved as kids, but in a new experience. So let's talk about what some of the positive outcomes of using a game that people love for source material can be. So when when we're looking at older game franchises, things like Harvest Moon, uh, Castlevania, Metroid, uh, even Mario, a lot of you know all these series have sort of an iconic image in people's minds, and they all you know grew up with these games. And at a younger age, it's a lot harder to see the flaws in a in a system of games. Uh, but sometimes the game material holds up really well, and the you know, it can be adapted into something that's consumable today that people still enjoy playing. So let's go through games that really sort of take a basis of old IPs or materials and sort of, I think, build on them in a positive way while also still delivering on the sort of nostalgic feelings that people have for these sorts of games. So the first one and most recent one that I played was Bloodstained Curse of the Moon. Now, this is actually an 8-bit sort of uh, demake of an upcoming game that's meant to be a sort of spiritual successor to the Castlevania series called Bloodstained uh, oh god, what's it called? Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. And basically, this is sort of an, an 8-bit demake of that game, because that game is more of a, a 2D, 3D game that's, you know, a, a new take on the Castlevania series. But this this one was part of... So it was a Kickstarter project, and part of the promises for it, if they hit a certain goal, was you know, an 8-bit version of, of the Bloodstained series, and what we got was Bloodstained Curse of the Moon. Now, it's a relatively short game, but what this game does so right is the fact that it captures the essence of, I think it's Castlevania 3 or 4, I forget which one specifically, but it basically takes the new characters from the Bloodstained series, which are sort of carbon copies of characters from the Castlevania series, like Simon Belmont and uh, Alucard, and takes those mechanics, sort of reskins them, but then puts them in sort of a new setting for players to go through a new world, but feels so so similar to Castlevania. I was playing through this and I was really kind of shocked that I wasn't just straight up playing an old NES Castlevania game. Um, and I think that's the sign of something that is like, that is that is played to a nostalgic source extremely well. And it's also telling that the gameplay holds up. So that's just one example. That's a relatively short game that got released a, a couple months ago that is only like, you know, I think it's about eight levels but every bit of it is just like, it's just the right amount of, of gameplay and material to hit you with sort of all those memories of those old NES and SNES Castlevania games. Um, another one that I want to talk about that is uh, not as recent as that one, but came out last year, is called Mighty Gunvolt Burst. So sim- so it's in the same franchise family as Mighty Number no. 9, but this game is is what Mighty Number no. 9 should have been. It is a 2D platformer that uses, you know, 8-bit, 16-bit graphics, and it, but it is like straight up Mega Man, but they didn't, and it has the same level of difficulty as Mega Man 2. I picked up this one last year, and I found myself struggling, but like in, in the way that you 
you would with old uh, NES Mega Man games. And, you know, it has the same protagonist as uh, Mighty Number no. 9, but, you know, he's been sort of compressed. But they also, instead of, they also mix up the mechanics a little bit. So instead of absorbing uh, the end boss's element, you get what are sort of uh, chips that you can put into your character and sort of um, change up their blaster element as you go along. So you get sort of these smaller tools that you can combine to create different kinds of varied shots. Like you can create like a burst shot, a spread shot, a diagonal shot, or elemental base shots. So they give you a pretty customizable blaster system and uh, you can have a few loadouts at a time. Now I think this is a really good way of building on the original mechanics of Mega Man without it having just being a reskin. So what it does is it takes those original tough platforming mechanics and sort of turns them on their head. Well, that doesn't turn the techniques on their head so much, but turns the battle mechanics on its head a little bit because it makes combat more accessible and more approachable because you can go into one of the first boss fights without defeating one of the other bosses and still have an advantage if you have the right elemental blaster on. So it sort of gives people a taste for what they wanted from Mighty Number no. 9. And it's a shame because I think this this game kind of flew under the radar, but this is the game that Mighty Number no. 9 really should have been and feels a lot more like Mega Man than that game ever did. Okay, so uh, another one that I want to mention that I'm sure everyone has heard that you're talked about off since it was released is uh, Stardew Valley. So Stardew Valley was produced by one guy by himself, uh, Eric Barron, and this game series was heavily inspired by the Harvest Moon series, but I think this, out of all the ones I'm going to talk about, is really one that takes the source material and elevates it to a new plane. So Stardew Valley was, you know, heavily inspired by the Harvest Moon series. Uh, the creator, Eric Barron, loved that game, would play it with his girlfriend, and decided to make a game similar to it. But he took it so much further, even just by himself. And, you know, it uses an 8-bit art style. Um, it's all very, like, it's, it, it's not simplistic, but it's simple. The game itself has some very complex farming mechanics, but it doesn't present them in a difficult way. It, it can take a little while to, get, to wrap your head around it, but the game is just so accessible and sort of captures that same simplicity of those old Harvest Moon games that it's just one of those games that you just kick, kick up your feet, work on your farm for a few in-game days and just put it down and, and you can do whatever you want. It's just so open to the player and it's it's really kind of refreshing in a, in a, you know, in a time of games where everything needs to be high octane and intense and the best graphics ever and to find a game that finds that kind of reclap reclaims that sort of simple pleasures to gaming and makes mundane tasks fun, I think is really cool. Um, it's not something that can be easily reproduced. So the next one that I want to talk about uh, is I think it's probably not my favorite on this list, but it's one that I haven't fully beaten yet. But for some reason, I just really love, and it's actually got me into the franchise it's based on. Well, that inspired by. So the game I'm talking about is Axiom Verge. Now this game, I, I read a, a bit about the development process. It was developed by you know Thomas Happ, a, another game by one guy. Um, and it didn't start as being inspired by the Metroid series, but in in the end, it ended up drawing a lot from the Metroid series. It's very isolating. The music is very uncomfortable. It uses a 16-bit art style. And, it, and it's a Metroidvania, but it's a really great example of taking, you know, the old, the old sort of way that Metroidvanias would take on exploration and sort of turning it on its head a little bit. Um, it is a pretty difficult game. The bosses can be uh, a little hazardous if you don't know what you're doing. And it keeps you on your toes. You know, it's sort of a game that makes you feel, you know, um, claustrophobic and like you're someplace foreign. And that, that's what the old Metroid games did too, right? You're in a strange place with all these organisms that are just attacking you because you're invading their homeland and you have to fight back for your own survival. And in that way, this game does a really awesome job of making you feel isolated. Like this is one that I would suggest putting putting on headphones when you play and pick it up on Switch if you can, because like then you can just sort of, you know, dig, dig yourself into a hole and sort of uh, experience this in sort of an isolated 
chamber, but it this is one that I think really captures the original feelings of the Metroid games, but builds on it. You know, it has it has guns and mechanics that weren't found in the original Metroid. Like, there's a gun that, like, there's disruptions in the world, and they're actually pixelized graphics in the world, and you get a gun that breaks those down. So it's things like that, where there's inventive new mechanics that you wouldn't find in a Metroid game that are, that are sort of unique to Axiom Verge, but it still feels very much in the Metroid vein. I can't, like, recommend this one enough if you really are just looking for a sort of old-school Metroid experience on on current hardware. So the next two I want to talk about, I've talked about one before on the last episode, so I won't harp on it too much, but Shovel Knight is one that I only want to mention briefly, but basically Shovel Knight takes all of its platforming mechanics and, you know, world map and music and aesthetic from the NES days and SNES days and sort of puts it into an updated package. You know, like I said before, it's an example of of a game that took sort of the limitations of design they had back then, recreated it in current day, you know, in sort of that same shell, but builds on it using subtle technology and techniques from today's way of developing games that sort of makes it a really... It's a game that is what you remember those platformers being in your head. It's not the old NES platformers to a T. It's what you remember with nostalgic and rose-tinted glasses. So I won't harp on that much more. Um, I, I just wanted to mention it here again because it's something that I feel like anyone who loves you know, retro-inspired games should take a look at it. And then sort of uh, the last one that I kind of want to touch on in this section is a game that isn't even, it's not out yet, technically. Completely, it actually comes out later this week, so it's called Octopath Traveler. Um, it's a Switch exclusive, but it's basically a game that's uh, it's developed by Square Enix, and it is, like, heavily inspired by old-school RPGs. And what I really love about this game is that it's sort of, it's similar in the vein of Shovel Knight, that it's, it's presented in a way that your nostalgia glasses make you view old RPGs. It's, it's in what they call a 2D HD art style, which essentially means everything is 16-bit or 8-bit pixel sprites, but then it's in a 3D world. So everything, you move through a 3D space. It's not that there's, there's no 2D plane of moving. Everything is in 3D, and then they use lighting effects to create depth of field and vignetting, and it's really gorgeous. Like, this is a game that anyone who is a fan of old RPGs or JRPGs should definitely check this out because, I mean, just for the, the visual alone I, is what sort of hooked me to begin with. I, I have I, I do like RPGs, but I've never been really super heavily into JRPGs, but this game kind of pulled me in. And what, what was great about this too, the way it was marketed is there were two demos. There was an initial demo last year when they announced the game, and then there was a secondary demo released about a month ago um, around E3 that is actually going to let you carry your progress over to the main game. It has a three-hour you know cap on the on a time limit, but you can transfer your experience over to the new game. So this game's a little different from older RPGs because there's eight main characters and you can sort of tackle any of their journeys in whatever order you want to. Now that in itself is sort of unique as a mechanic and uh, the the combat style is reminiscent of old Final Fantasy games, you know, in, in using a turn-based strategy combat. But they sort of add new mechanics to it to keep it a little bit fresh. There's there's a there's a break system where your enemies have a certain amount of hits they can take from an, a type of weapon they're vulnerable to and if you hit them, you know, you, say you're facing an enemy and he has five shields, you have to hit him five times to break his focus and make him skip a turn and also when he when you break his focus all of your attacks will hit as critical hits so it's sort of this like mitigation of dynamic mitigation of deciding okay do i save up all of my boost attacks for one turn and just knock down all of his, all of his shields at once or do i slowly break down his shields over the turns while also doing damage um i think it's a pretty uh, a neat mechanic to throw in and i think it's going to keep the combat fresh compared to some of the older jrpgs so those are sort of some of the games that 
that I've gone through and experienced over the last few years that I thought were really good uh, homages to their source material, but but the point that I want to get across about these games is that they all build on the source material in a new way, right? None of them are carbon copies of the source material. They sort of take take what people love about those nostalgic old games and then sort of update them for current gameplay and generation mechanics. So, like, there's, you know, there, it's not just a copy and paste of the old game. That's, that's really what I'm trying to get to. That level of nostalgia for inspiration is here, but it's also important that they sort of set themselves apart in their own right, but also make it accessible for gamers today. So I think this is where I want to sort of wrap up the podcast for this time. I know that this was a bit of a different episode and it didn't dive so much into, you know, certain game design mechanics. I wanted to look a little bit more at sort of nostalgic inspiration and sort of the effects that that can have on games and sort of biases that that can bring into, you know, new games that people are experiencing. So, you know, we went through a couple that that didn't have as good a turnout as they could have. But then we also went through a lot that, you know, use that, that nostalgic inspiration as a basis and sort of build on it in their own way so that people are getting sort of a slice of the nostalgic gaming they love but they're also getting something new along with it which I think is pretty important for games nowadays because you can look at a series like Mario and Nintendo has you know done the the new Super Mario Bros and everything but a lot of those games can be same same they are great platformers in their own right I'm not criticizing the games themselves so much as just it would be good if maybe Nintendo took a sort of approach like some of these other independent games have done and strip down Mario's mechanics a bit, you know, which is just running and jumping, but take it back down to that basic of a level and think of ways of reinventing it. And that's what I think a lot of these games have done really well. You know, games like Mighty Gunvolt Burst, Stardew Valley, Axiom Verge, Octopath Traveler, Shovel Knight, and Bloodstained Curse of the Moon are all really great examples of nostalgic-driven games that I think people should check out if they have an interest in retro gaming at all. And I know that the last, you know, the platformer episode in this one have been sort of very opinion-based on on my front, but I also wanted to sort of give you guys a look into games I like, not just information on certain games, because, you know, this, I'm still sort of figuring out what the right formula for the podcast is, and next week I will definitely just be profiling one game specifically, and I have a good one in mind. So I I really want to thank you guys for being here, for letting me experiment with the formula a little bit and trying a couple different episodes to see how I like them. And I I do like it. I think I'm going to do more sort of mix-up episodes thrown in between. Not so much two back-to-back all the time like this, but I'm definitely going to mix it up a bit so it's not just me, you know, reciting facts and design inspiration all the time. I think it's important to sort of keep the material fresh and moving. So guys, that's going to do it. If you like what you heard, go give us a good review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it. Where can you find us? You can find us, you know, on Twitter at 8BitArch. You can email me at 8BitArch at gmail.com. And then I also created a Discord server for our listeners. And you can find the link to that in the show notes and on the website. So thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking time to listen to me ramble about retro-inspired games and why I think nostalgia is a good and a bad thing. Um, I really appreciate you guys just taking time to listen, and I will see you all next time.